Okay, that was the best applause of the services I've preached at already. So congratulations, Spring Lake, 9 a.m., bright and early. Everybody got their coffee? Everybody got their donut? Okay, yeah. Everybody awake? Okay, yeah. Hey, uh, one thing that I've just been blown away by is the talent and the gifting of a lot of people here at Harvest, but especially uh, the worship team. Can, can we just say thank you to them one, one more time? They are incredible, and they, they truly lead us in spirit and truth, and I, and I love them for that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them to 1 Kings 19. We're going to be in 1 Kings 19 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand real high. We have ushers coming down the aisles to give you a copy of God's Word. We want you to have that, especially if you don't have a Bible of your own. Grab that, take it home, and keep it. Uh, we'd love, you, we'll love for you to have a copy of God's Word uh, of, of one of your own. So uh, before we get started this morning, let me ask a question. Who here has ever dealt with or experienced unmet expectations? <laughs> the shy ones aren't raising their hand, but yeah, everybody, right? Here's an example. I expected... When I woke up this morning to walk outside to my car, I expected it to be a little crisp. It's October, it's fall, right? What I did not expect was frost on the windshield. <laughs> Guys, it's October. It's not supposed to be frosting yet. I'm from Oklahoma. I don't love winter. You're going to have to not judge me and, and, and give me grace with that. But frost, come on, what is going on? But here's the thing, and, and this is sort of a serious word here, serious moment here. One of the realities that we as believers need to get used to is that our lives will be filled with unmet expectations. Filled with them. Sometimes unmet expectations can cause a lot of stress, maybe fear, anxiety, doubt, and sometimes, if we're honest, despair. We're going to see this in the life of Elijah this morning, but I can attest to this in my own life. You know, some years ago, I was entering a season of, of ministry, and my hopes were high. My expectations were high. I had great plans, great aspirations uh, to, for the ministry to move in a positive direction. Friends, it was going to be epic, right? We always have those feelings, right? We start a new job, start a new career, start a new endeavor, start a new business, whatever it might be. We are excited, we have expectations, and we almost believe, we almost know for a fact that it's going to go well, but... The overall plan or picture did not, ending, did not end up working or ending up at all the way I imagined it would. You know, things went wrong. And to be honest, a lot of it was really hard. And it ended up bringing me to a place of uncertainty and doubt. And I was even at a place of questioning God, questioning my calling, questioning my gifting. And for months, some of you may know what I'm about to say, it can have experienced what I'm about to say, it's as, it's as if I was walking around with this 10-pound weight right here in your chest. Maybe it felt like ropes were tied to your chest, and people just tug on it and tug on it. It's that feeling of being stuck. Is anyone in the room this morning carrying that with them? You feel like you're carrying something that you don't need to be carrying. You feel stuck. And I've been there as countless others, even in this room, have. What happened? Well, part of it is that I experienced unmet expectations. 
plans that went sideways. I became exhausted. I, I began to feel isolated, and I pretty much reached the end of myself. I reached the end of my rope. I was ready to throw the towel in because as far as I knew, I was essentially out of options. Can anyone relate? Maybe it's something going on at work. Maybe it's something going on in your family, in a relationship, in your parenting, or in a wayward child. Whatever it might be, it is within. And from that moment, that place in God's restoring grace that he wants to restore, refresh, and, and, and reinvigorate us to stand up and to press on. Because here's the reality. Here's the reality of the Christian life, of walking with Jesus. At some point, as we're following him, at some point in our path of obedience, we will come to the end of ourselves. We will. We will come to the end of ourselves. It's true for you. It's true for me. And it was true for even a great man like Elijah. So as we work through the chapter this morning, we're going to see at least three realities of the Christian life that can push us to despair. Three realities in life, in the Christian walk, that can push us to despair. And we already mentioned the first, and that's un unmet expectations. Unmet expectations, or perhaps we might have misguided expectations. Remember Elijah, he had just become the hero at Mount Carmel and defeated the prophets of Baal. In his mind, this was going to spark the revival. This was going to spark the religious reform in Israel. And this is an amazing spiritual high, an amazing ministry win. So he comes down from the mountain and, and heads to Jezreel where Ahab and his pagan wife Jezebel lived. And if you remember from last week, Jezebel was the influencer, right? She was the one who swayed Ahab away from the true worship of Yahweh. And Elijah is heading straight to the gate of Jezreel. And the last verse of chapter 18, if you You've got your Bible open there. It says that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. How's that for a high level of confidence? He's expecting Ahab's repentance. He's expecting Ahab to rebuke his wife and to order the removal of all the pagan idolatry, all the pagan practices. He's expecting all of these things, I mean, this is what has to happen, right? This is what has to happen. God's victory over the prophets of Baal was undeniable. How else could Ahab respond? But it doesn't go as Elijah expects, does it? In verse 1, Ahab reports to, to Jezebel what happened on, on Carmel, how Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal. But not only does Ahab, in his rebellion, or perhaps at best his passivity, fail to repent and put an end to the idolatry, he unleashes the fury of his wife. On Elijah. In verse 2, we read, Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to do to you what you've done to my prophets. It was Elijah's expectation that this was a great victory, but he receives word from Jezebel that she intends to kill him. And Ahab's just all for it. Ahab won't stop, stop her. All of his efforts to reform, all of his plans to make Israel healthy and faithful again, when all seemed to be going so well, it all came crashing down. And now here's a, 
Now there's a hit out on his own life, and these unmet expectations begin a spiral downward into his despair, a spiral that continues in verse 3. Elijah becomes afraid, and he flees the danger of Jezebel to Judah and Beersheba. And and so there's this next reality, the second reality that can push us to despair is that we will have moments of fear. Anybody struggling with fearful thoughts this morning? We will have fear, call it fear, uncertainty, trepidation, confusion, turmoil, anxiety, whatever we might call it or whatever we might be experiencing, a lot of times those moments are caused when our presumed plans, our assumed expectations are not met. And I'm thinking back in my own life, I just shared a minute ago, I have to admit that the most most times when I am fearful or anxious, it's because things didn't go the way I planned. When, When my sense of, my false sense of control is revealed as just that, false. That's when I become restless. In a word, I'm fearful. And sometimes, like Elijah, we can be quick to make decisions when we are fearful. There's a tendency for us to go into retreat mode. So let's back up for a second, because I think we need to be fair or even empathetic to Elijah. Let's ask some questions. Did he start this whole process, this whole ministry, with unmet or misguided expectations? Perhaps. Yeah, sure. Did he have a moment of fear that led him into the wilderness? Definitely. Is it possible he is lacking in the discipline of physical rest? Totally. Is everything he is experiencing his fault and his fault only? No. No, it's also Jezebel's paganism. It's also Ahab's rebellion and Ahab's lack of leadership. The point is, sometimes trouble finds us. Trouble finds us at times, and it finds us whether the the cause is our sin or not. Remember John 16, when our Lord says, in this world you will have trouble. You'll have it. It's like he's promising it. Friends, if we are faithfully and we are continually walking with Jesus, if we are aligning our lives to God and to his word, We need to expect trouble. We need to expect tribulation. It is bound to find us as it found Elijah. So let's read on in verses 4 and 5. But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. Now now notice this. Notice before he ventures even further into the wilderness, he tells his servant, hey, I don't need you anymore. I don't need you. See, see, a prophet at the time, he would always have like an assistant or a servant, uh, call it an intern. So Elijah's like, hey, ministry's over. We've done all we can do. I don't need you anymore. Good luck. And he sends him into the wilderness, where he sends himself. He leaves his servant and sends himself further into the wilderness. It's like he's saying, there's nothing left for us to do. I'm at the end of my robe. All my plans and hopes for what this mission, for what my life was supposed to be, all of it has failed. There's no point in any of it. Lord, let me die. At the Grand Haven campus this morning, Pastor Dave is making a point. He's saying that The enemy's lies are loudest when we're exhausted. But equally true is the same idea. The enemy's lies are loudest when we're isolated. When we're isolated. Anybody 
ever have the experience of waking up in the middle of the night, whether it's 2 a.m., 3 a.m., you're waking up, and all you can think about are your problems. All you can think about are your fears. All you can think about are your anxieties. And in those moments of isolation, aren't those, aren't those fears, anxieties, aren't they amplified? Don't they seem to be a lot bigger than maybe they really are? See, Elijah has isolated himself, and he's left himself to battle his thought life alone. Don't do that. Somebody say, don't do that. <laughs> don't battle your thought life alone. Don't go there. Don't retreat. Don't isolate. Because despair, despondency, and depression, friends, they're meant to be fought together with each other, with other believers. The Christian life as a whole is meant to be lived together because we will, at some point or another, in some form or fashion, whether it's our fault or someone else's fault or some combination of that, we will be brought to the end of ourselves. That's the third reality. And it may be due to sin, again, ourselves or others. It may be due to sovereign circumstances beyond our control, unmet expectations, our own fears, anxieties, or a providential, again, a providential combination of all of those things, but it will happen. And some of you are there right now. Some of you are there right now. You're dealing with, I can, I, I can imagine, unimaginable <laughs> unimaginable despair, despondency, depression. You're there. Like Elijah, you don't see any way forward. You're physically, emotionally, and spiritually tanked. You're exhausted. It, it, it took a miracle for you to be here this morning. I get that. There's no light at the end of the tunnel, and you feel like all you can do is find a hole in the ground, lie down, and just give up. It, and you know, it, it might start in different places. It might start in different places for different people, but it all ends in a similar place. When circumstances bring us to the point of exhaustion and the temptation to isolate and trap ourselves in our own mind with, fear, with fearful and doubtful thoughts. And, and what we need in those moments is the same thing Elijah needed. He needed rescue. He needed restoration. And he's going to get it. He's going to get it as we read on in verse 5 and onward. This is where we see how God pulls him out. And, and it's where we're going to see how he can pull us out of our despair. So there are three remedies. Three gospel reminders that we can cling to. Three rungs on the ladder that Christ lowers to us in the pit that we can cling to, that we can grab onto so that he can pull us out of that pit of despair. The first rung to grab a hold of is to know that our despair, listen, our despair has a direction. Our despair has a direction. What does that mean? Meaning your despair is not pointless. Your despair is not meaningless or arbitrary. The promise of the gospel for the believer is, the, is this, that your despair, your despondency, your trial or tribulation, even your depression has purpose. And it has a purpose even if we can't see it or know it in the moment. 
but it is nevertheless in the moment, in that moment, perhaps for you in this moment right now that we need to grab onto this truth, that we need to grab onto this gospel remedy and take Elijah for an example. He had no clue what God was doing. He thought God was done. He thought it was over. He had no clue what God was doing. He was totally at a loss. But even in the midst of his despair, notice what God does or what does God not do right at the beginning. He doesn't give him an answer. (laughs) He doesn't give him the answers right away. Maybe because that information in Elijah's heart and Elijah's mind would not have even been helpful at the time. It's like he I'm not ready to give this next task to you. I'm not ready to give this wisdom. I'm not ready to impart this information to you yet, Elijah, because in your current state, you just don't have what it takes to receive it. So he doesn't tell him beforehand, God does not. God does not tell Elijah even beforehand that the trial is even coming. And when he, immediate, when he gets to his rock bottom, what does he do? He feeds him. He feeds him, and he allows him to rest. More on that in a minute. But without Elijah even knowing it, God was moving him somewhere. God was moving Elijah somewhere. Sure, he was going to move him geographically, but more importantly than where he was physically, he was moving Elijah to a point point and a place where he could experience God's grace an experience in a way that he had never known before, in a way that wouldn't have even been possible without the heartbreak and despair that came before it. Let me say that again. God was moving Elijah to a place to receive and experience the grace of God in such a way that without the despair, without the despondency, without the trial, he would not have been able to experience it in full. Friends, we will not know every reason maybe never on this side of heaven, but one reason we face trial, tribulation, even despair in our path of obedience is that we might turn our direction, that we might turn our hearts to the Lord. And there's even more to this. There's no doubt present sanctifying directions for our despair in our lives and our path of obedience, but there's also future purposes for it too. Meaning what? It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing, it is doing something, it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, being brought to the end of ourselves does something. It is doing something in your life right now. It is working, it is building, and it is pointing us to a gift of glory that we will experience in eternity. Somebody say amen. Maybe we can't see it. Most of the time, that's the case. Elijah couldn't know all of what God was doing, and neither can we. I heard a pastor once say that God may be doing a thousand things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. But here's what we can know. On the authority of God's word, it isn't pointless and it isn't meaningless. And it is certainly not a sign of God's disapproval. It's not his punishment. It's not his retaliation. It's not his vindictiveness. It is his grace. And it ends in glory. We sing a song about that. I know how the story ends. This is the hope and the promise of the gospel, friends. 
that any despair or misery, misery we face in this world, it is not the end. It is not the end of our story. God is redeeming it for our good and his glory. And that brings us to the second gospel remedy, the second rung of the ladder that we need to grab onto in our moments of despair. And that is that God's healing is holistic meaning it's full, meaning he's concerned about healing us on multiple levels. Notice first that Elijah, he's exhausted, he's starving, he is totally and utterly spent. And his last request is that God would take away his life, his physical life. And what does God do? He meets him exactly where he is by sending the angel of the Lord to him. Let's read in verse five there. And behold, an angel touched him physically touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again and a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. If you take notes in your Bible, underline that word Horeb the Mount of God. Now, what's crazy is that this angel of the Lord, this title, it's a title to describe, listen, the image of the invisible, of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God before God the Son took on flesh. Guys, what we're seeing, that this is a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And notice how he treats Elijah. He doesn't treat him like a failure or a disappointment. He doesn't berate him. Why'd you run away? Why are you giving up? Why are you the way that you are? <laughs> it's what I tell myself, or it's what I ask myself a lot of the times. Why am I this way, right? He doesn't correct him. He, he doesn't even ask him any questions yet. That comes later. What does he do? He gives him food. <laughs> and he gives him Rest, As King David wrote generations before, the Lord prepares a table before Elijah in the presence of enemies all around him in Israel, and he lays Elijah down to rest in green pastures beside still waters. And like the good shepherd he is, the angel of the Lord runs. He runs to the aid of his lost, battered, and wayward sheep. And first things first, he feeds him. He nourishes him physically. Get food, get rest. That's the next rung in the ladder to grab onto for some of us, right? If we're in this pit of despair, it might just be what we need to start thinking clearly, what we need to start praying properly is we need to take care of ourselves physically. We're not just spiritual. We're not just physical. We're both. We need to take care of everything so in his grace, God meets Elijah's basic needs. In fact, until those needs are met, it, it, it's probably not going to be helpful to receive further instructions. He gives him food because you're not well enough to do the next thing. You need this to go the next 40 days. So if you find yourself depressed, despondent, or in despair, make sure you're getting the rest that you need, first of all, and make sure that you're getting the sustenance that you need. That's a really spiritual thing. Sometimes the, the holiest thing we can do is to eat a sandwich and take a nap. Amen? Sometimes the holiest, the most spiritual thing we can do is to eat a sandwich or tacos <laughs> and take a nap. Get eight hours of sleep. So God has addressed 
Elijah's physical needs. And then he sends him, and we have to assume that he does give him these instructions on a 40-day journey into the wilderness, into Horeb, or to Horeb, the Mount of God. So in his this holistic and uh, his holistic approach in healing and restoring Elijah, he's given him food for physical needs, and now he's going to give him a friend for his emotional needs. What does the Lord say in verse 9? What are you doing here, Elijah? It's funny. God knows the answer, right? He's not asking Elijah because God needs the information. God's just asking Elijah to talk. And he does in verse 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Here's what he's saying. Well, you know what, God? Um, What am I doing here? I'm the one who had a plan, right? I was the one working tirelessly to ensure that your will, that your purposes would be done in Israel. Everyone else stinks. I'm the only one. They've rejected, they've rebelled against you. I am the only one who gets it. I am the only one who understands. So that's why they're trying to kill me. I am alone. And it's over. That's it, Elijah. Tell me how you feel. Great. And notice the patience of God in this. After Elijah answers the first time, God demonstrates this crazy, miraculous phenomena with the earth, wind, and fire. And God asks him the same question again in verse 13. Elijah repeats the exact same answer. It's word for word. And even then, God doesn't correct him. God doesn't rebuke him. He knows that we, like Elijah, oftentimes just need to simply talk to Jesus. We simply need to talk to our Lord because he wants our honesty. He wants our honesty. He's looking for authentic prayers, not perfect ones. So as the friend Elijah likely did not have during his ministry, God just listens. He gives him emotional support. He gives Elijah a friend. He lets him talk. He receives the airing out of his frustration with grace and understanding. He encourages Elijah on that emotional level. Church, we need that kind of support when walking through despair. We need prayer. We need community. We need prayer in community. We need the help of others to talk with and talk through what we are carrying, what is tugging on us. That's the healing we need on the emotional level. And it's one of the ways God met Elijah exactly where he was with exactly what he needed. So God has given Elijah what? Food. He's given him a friend. Now he's going to give him faith in his holistic approach here. He is going to restore and heal him now spiritually. And sometimes... Sometimes the best way to do that, the best way to restore and build, our, build up our faith, that next rung of the ladder that we need to grab onto, it is to remind us of where it all began. Maybe you can bring to mind when your faith became real, when you responded to the gospel in faith. That's certainly where it started for you in your life, but that's not where it started in history, Right? For Elijah and for Israel, it began on that very mountain that God sent him to, Horeb. I told you to underline it because there's a different name for Mount Horeb. It's Mount Sinai. It's 
Mount Sinai. God brought Elijah back where God gave the law and made his covenant with the nation of Israel through Moses. It's as if he's saying, I brought you here, Elijah. I brought you here to remind you that I have not forgotten what, I, what happened on this mountain. I have not forgotten the covenant I made, the promise I made to redeem my people. It was here that I showed my commitment to not only my people, but to you, Elijah, but to you, believer, but to you, Christian, but to you, child of God. He has not forgotten you. He will not leave you where you are. He sees you. He knows you. He's a high priest who sympathizes with you. And through his word, his spirit, and through his people, he runs to comfort you. And then we come to this wild demonstration starting in verse 11. And he said, Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? What's going on here? Well, first of all, just as God brought Elijah back to Sinai to reiterate his goodness and his faithfulness, he's actually reiterating something that happened to Moses back in Exodus 33. And he's foreshadowing for Elijah, and especially for us, the gospel. When God's glory passed by Moses, Moses was, well, what? He was protected by the rock. And we don't know for sure, but could it be that Elijah went back to that very same spot, that very same spot on the mountain, the very same rock or cleft or cave, because he experienced something similar to Moses? We see wind, earth, and fire smash against the rocks, but God is not in the wind. God is not in the earth. God is not in the fire. Where is God? He's in the soft, low whisper. Where is he? God is in his word. And so just as the rock absorbs the wrath of God so that Elijah can have a relationship with him, it is Christ who absorbs the wrath of God on the cross so that we might have a relationship with him through his word. In a world full of despair, in a world full of depression, every sin, every sorrow of man was placed upon the Son of Man so that his people might know and remember him. And so when you find yourself there, if you're there right now, remember. Remember what God has done in his commitment to you, what he has done to bring you out of your despair, out of your despair and into the joy of his kingdom. Grab the ladder, grab the next rung and the next one so that by God's grace, he can pull you out. He can pull you up. So along with Elijah, we can be holistically restored and refreshed by the power of the gospel. But there's just one more lesson for Elijah, one more lesson for us this morning, one more rung for us to grab onto, to cling to in our moments of despair, and that is that God's plan is always progressing. God's plan is always progressing. 
Let's pick it up in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and Abel, Meholah, and you shall anoint to be prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha Put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Side note, you're not alone. Probably not a side note. Elijah thought he was alone, but he didn't realize there were still 7,000 more. So finally, though, God gives him the plan, right? And what does he do? He, he's supposed to anoint a foreign Syrian king. What's that about? Um, this Hazael, the king of the Assyrians, and he will uh, later he'll recruit Elisha to be his apprentice and his eventual successor. Well, what in the world is going on? Why is Elijah, again, going to anoint somebody who will eventually go to war with Israel? How does that make any sense? You're probably asking that question in your life right now. How does some of this even make sense? Where did this come from? Why? Well, at least for now, what we can draw from this story, as odd as it seems to us and to Elijah, God is not working within our agenda. If you can get to the point where you can realize that, it's so freeing that God is not working within my agenda. We may have our own ideas, our own plans for how his purposes are supposed to advance, but the truth of the matter is God's plans and purposes are multi-layered. They go deeper than our understanding, and we may, we may only see one layer at a time. It's Isaiah 55, right? Isaiah 55, 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, I may not be working exactly the way you think I, I should be, but I am on the move. I am working and orchestrating all human events. I am always progressing my purposes. Even if you can't see or understand, even if ungodly kings or candidates come into power, you can know, you can know that I am working. Even if loved ones walk away, I am working. Even if a child is lost, I'm working. Even in the diagnosis, I am working. Even in the mental illness, I am working. Even when my finances tank, I am working. I am working all things together for the good of those who love me and who are called according to my purposes. You can trust me, he says. Friends, it may be that what you're walking through now, your current season of struggle and despair, what it might be is merely simply but gloriously the seeds of the fruit that you will get to enjoy years from now. So my question is, are we okay with that? Do we accept that assignment? Someone who did was Elisha. It's a little three verses at the end of our chapter here. Elijah goes to 
call Elisha. And what does Elisha do? He gives his wealth away. (laughs) He gives his wealth away. All of his oxen he sacrifices and donates to his village, saying, everything I have is the Lord's. Come what may, despair, despondency, trial, tribulation, depression, come what may, all I have is the Lord's. He gives everything away. It's a burn the ships moment. There's no going back. Everything I have is yours. So what this text bears upon us this morning, what this text bears upon us is the question of, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to see our despair as a means to serve and to glorify God? Are we going to find a way to worship him in it, to give him the glory through it, knowing that in the end it is for my good, really, and for his glory? And that brings us to the big challenge this chapter leaves us with. This is the thing that we want to take away this morning is that when you reach your end, as it inevitably will happen, when you reach your end, remember where you started. Remember where you started. When we reach our end and ask ourselves, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What is going on? The question can turn to faith if we ask, what might God be doing here? What am I doing here? The question of doubt, the question of faith is, what might God be doing with me? This is not my end. This is not my end because I've seen the cross. Yes, the cross, the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. This is the gospel, the the good news that not only redeems sinners for eternity, but has the power to pull the weary believer out of despair. It has the power to lift us, to turn our mourning to dancing, to turn our bones into an army. So when you're in that moment of despair, look to, grab onto, cling to the cross. Look to the beauty and goodness of Jesus and receive the words he offers you. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus that you not only know that we're here in our moments of despair, but through your word, through your spirit, because of the cross, your son runs to us. Your son runs to meet all of our needs. You provide for us physically. You minister to us emotionally and you build us spiritually through the ministry of your word. Lord, I pray for the despairing. I pray for the depressed in this room this morning. God, may you move mightily in their hearts. May you show them the cross and the hope we have there. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen.